Welcome back to the program. There are many legacies of the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the efforts of women to have reproductive choice. Of these, arguably, the reproductive freedom of women has had the most profound, lasting, and global impact. Before the efforts of four mismatched anti-establishment characters in the 1960s, women had, since the days of ancient Egypt, sought to control their biological destiny. And while today we look at the pill and birth control as the norm, the efforts to develop and market it were anything but normal. In a time when we think that an app on our phone can change the world, it's worth looking back at something that truly did. My guest today, Jonathan Eig, is the best-selling author of three previous books. He's a former senior writer for the Wall Street Journal, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Eig here to talk about his new book, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to have you here. It is remarkable to think about the degree to which this really did change the world. Talk a little bit about your realization of that, your view of that as you were working on this book. You know, I was born after the pill came along, uh, not much after, but it was it was something I took for granted. And, and, and I, I heard somebody, I heard a sermon in which the rabbi made the case for the, this pill being the most important invention of the 20th century, and I was, I was stunned by that because it had never occurred to me. But when you think about the world before the pill, the average American woman had 3.7 children. Uh, there was no presence in, 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 uh, of, with women on corporate boards, in, in uh, law offices, certainly not on the Supreme Court, in political office. Men were running everything. And um, you know, women were, were in many ways treated like second-class citizens. Uh, marital rape was, was not against the law. It was not even grounds for divorce. Women had very few options um, and very few opportunities, really, to, to control their own fertility. And without controlling their own fertility, there were large parts of their life that they couldn't control. Uh, because when you had more children than you wanted or could, or could handle or could afford, you suddenly found yourself in desperate situations. And, and that was the state for countless millions of American women and, and really women around the world. And given that, it's not surprising that the solution to this issue, that the pill wasn't developed in, in a pristine kind of laboratory environment, the way a polio vaccine might have been developed or other inventions and other things at the time, that it had to really take the effort of some anti-establishment characters in order to do it. That's right. No, um, no corporation, no drug company was going to sponsor research on a birth control pill. The government certainly wasn't going to do it. Universities were afraid to do it because there were still laws on the books uh, banning birth control and banning even the dissemination of information on birth control. So you would be risking jail by by doing research on birth control, and that's what these that's what these uh, rebels did. They risked jail, and they did this thing completely under the radar. They were all characters who were willing to take huge risks to to get this done. And enter Margaret Sanger into this picture. Talk a little bit about her. Yeah, Sanger goes back to the 19-teens uh, when she began advocating for better birth control so that women could control their bodies, so that they could have sex for pleasure the same as men, so they could improve their health, so they could stop having back alley abortions. And, and she's been saying for decades, what we really need is some kind of a magical pill that would let women turn on and off their reproductive systems because all of these crude methods that we have, condoms and IUDs and, and, and diaphragms, they're, they're very ineffective and, and they require the, the, the help of men 
to to obtain. But if there was a pill that women could take uh, with or without the knowledge of the of the men they were sleeping with, then women would really have uh, the power to control their own bodies. But but she talked about this thing as if it was a fantasy. Every scientist she met said, "Yeah, right, dream on." Uh, until 1950, when she she met Gregory Pincus. What work had been done before Pincus came along? Before this alliance, what work had been done? as far as scientific research, as to what might actually work? Well, there was some work being done in, in lab animals, um, going back even uh, you know, 20, 30 years before Pincus came along. And there was a growing awareness that hormones controlled the reproductive system. And, and, and really, you know, we were just beginning to understand how to use hormones by the 1950s, uh, use them to control the body's functions. So by the time Pincus came along, he knew that there had been some experiments that proved that progesterone and estrogen were important uh, hormones that were uh, controlling the, the, the process of reproduction. And he theorized that uh, if you gave women progesterone, that they might stop ovulating because when a woman is pregnant, her body releases uh, progesterone, and that, that stops her from, from making more eggs, or releasing more eggs, I should say. So, so he, that was his theory going into it, um, but it had never been tested on humans, and, and there were many reasons why it was difficult to test it on humans. And Pincus was a biologist who had been at Harvard and was essentially fired for some of his experiments there. Yeah, he was a radical, and he was also a Jew at, the, at a time of anti-Semitism at, at Harvard. But um, he was a, he was experimenting with in vitro fertilization in the 1930s, and bragged that someday science would would control the reproductive process, and that men might it might not even be necessary for women to have babies, and and that that scared a lot of people and and cost him his job. And he was doing these experiments with hormones and rabbits. Talk a little bit about that. That's right. He began when he when he met Sanger and, and proposed that that it might be possible to make a birth control pill. They had to begin testing this. So of course they 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 couldn't do it on humans. They had to prove that it was effective and that it was safe. So they began by testing it on rabbits and rats. Um, he set up a laboratory in in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he, where he had started his own scientific foundation, and with about two thousand dollars in funding from from Planned Parenthood. They went out and started uh, testing these these animals, and they proved that for sure in animals it was 100% effective. That when when given progesterone, these these rabbits would not uh, reproduce. How did Sanger and Pincus meet? How did they come together? It's a it's a funny story um, because uh, it's just one of those odd quirks of of history. Um, Pincus had been working with with hormones for years, and some of the work he'd been doing had been in an in insane asylum in, in Massachusetts. And a, a very wealthy woman named Catherine McCormick had been sponsoring some of that research because she was trying to find a cure for her mentally ill husband. So when she heard that, that, that Pincus was working with hormones, she mentioned to Sanger years later, there's this guy in Boston who, who seems to know a lot about hormones, seems to know a lot about human reproduction. Uh, maybe we could talk to him about the pill that, we, that, we've been, that we've been dreaming of all these years. And, and Catherine McCormick arranged this meeting between Sanger and Pincus, and Catherine McCormick eventually agreed to sponsor all of the research, paid for the entire research project, almost her, entirely herself. And tell us who Catherine McCormick was. McCormick was this older woman, even older than, than Sanger. Sanger's in her 70s by now. McCormick is in her mid to late 70s. And uh, she married into the, the Chicago McCormick family, the inventors of the, of the Reaper, International Harvester. 
um, seemed like a marriage, uh, you know, straight out of Hollywood. Um, these two beautiful, wealthy people. But as, right after their honeymoon, or actually on their honeymoon, Sanger's husband uh, began acting strangely and ended up being institutionalized for the rest of his life, completely incapable of functioning in society. And Catherine McCormick spent decades trying to find a cure and trying to care for her husband. And when he finally died, she inherited all of his wealth and said to Sanger, I want to use whatever I've got, whatever time and whatever money I've got left. And she had a lot of money. She said, I want to use it to, to work on that birth control pill project that we've been talking about for so long. Talk a little bit about Sanger's history with these causes. And in fact, she had gotten herself arrested several times over the years. That's right. Margaret Sanger was one of the, the true crusaders, a real um, you know, American warrior, um, set out as a nurse in, in, the, in the tenements on the Lower East Side of New York and saw how horrible the lives of women were, saw the, the effect that, that it had on them when, when they gave birth to eight, nine, ten children, um, couldn't afford it, their bodies couldn't hold up. Her own mother had died uh, very young because she just, her body just couldn't bear um, the burden of having so many children. And she committed herself to to freeing women, and and she was also a, an advocate for sex. She really believed that sex should be a pleasure, and that men and women should both be able to enjoy it. Um, women were were burdened by the fact that you know pregnancy that sex meant pregnancy, and and they there was no way that you could enjoy sex as long as uh, the fear of pregnancy was so great. So she really. Um, Became devoted her life to this cause and was arrested many times. Had to leave the country and and, and live in Europe for a while to avoid imprisonment, um, and and really sacrificed her family. You know, gave up. She had children of her own, but but um, neglected them at times because she was so devoted to this cause. And what's remarkable is how early this fight really started, even in the courts. You tell the story back, and I think in, you know, in the early 1900s, when this judge basically said that women just didn't have this right. That's right. And you have to remember that, you know, for thousands of years, we have lived in a world, and some people will say we're still living in the world, where womanhood equaled motherhood. And that was seen as the only real purpose for a woman's life. And for someone like Sanger to come along and say, no, it doesn't have to be that way, that was radical. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's still people having a hard time dealing with that concept. Talk a little bit about Pincus and how he said about this. He had a couple of other scientists working with him at the time. And really, how the process evolved? Well, once he recognized that it worked in lab animals, he became convinced that there was no reason it shouldn't work in women and that it shouldn't be perfectly safe. He was just a very confident man, um, despite having been been snubbed by Harvard and, and some other professional difficulties that he encountered, supremely confident and really believed that, the, that this was the right approach. So he was eager to begin testing it on women. The only problem was he was a biologist. He was a rabbit and rat man and had never really worked with humans. So he had to find a partner, and he did in, in Dr. John Rock, who was perhaps the most distinguished gynecologist in, in the Northeast working at Harvard, uh, beloved by his patients, this tall, gray-haired, handsome man, just a picture of respectability. And Pincus goes to Rock and says, I want to give some of your patients progesterone. Um, what do you think? And and he explains that it'll shut down their reproductive systems. Um, and and Rock begin, offers to to give the this progesterone. It's first it's an injection. It's not a pill yet. Um, Rock begins to Rock offers to give progesterone to these women who are seeking treatment for infertility. 
So they take women who are trying to have babies, who, who are having difficulty having babies, and they give them, in effect, the birth control pill. And the, the message is, we're going to really make sure you can't have babies. We're going to really shut down your reproductive system for a while. And then when you're done taking this, this, this medicine, maybe you'll have a rebound. Maybe you know, your body will be rested and you'll have, a, you'll have a better chance of getting pregnant. And that's the theory they're operating under. It's, it's, um, it's wildly um, inventive and, and bold because it's, um, it's basically finding a way to test this on humans for the first time, make sure it's safe, make sure these women are not going to drop dead or suffer horrible um, side effects, and make sure that, that progesterone really does stop ovulation in humans. And this is the first test of, of the pill. Of all of these characters, of these four characters, Rock was the one that was really the most establishment, as you talk about him. Why was he willing to do this? Why was he willing to take this on with these three other characters? Rock was a believer. Um, you know, he was a, he was a devout Catholic who thought the church was wrong. He had spent enough time working with with women in his practice that he honestly believed that birth control was a right that all women should have, and that the, that the Catholic Church was wrong to treat women this way, to say that that sex was only for procreation. He believed in the pleasures of sex. He believed it was good for a marriage for couples to enjoy that intimacy, and he was willing to put his his career on the line to fight for that. And, and he not only got involved in the scientific research, he became an advocate. He went to the Catholic Church. He met with leaders of the Vatican and tried to convince them that, that, that it was time to change their approach. And, um, of course, he didn't succeed, but uh, he was incredibly brave in, in his efforts. There was also a lot of other experimentation with, with individuals. Talk a little bit about how far it went, the human trials, the human testing. Well, when they got done trying it on, on this handful of patients um, in John Rock's practice, they, they went next to um, a state hospital for the insane and injected patients there. They even tried it on some men there just to see what would happen. Um, that that didn't go too well, and they backed off pretty quickly. Um, but but even then, they 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 know they knew they needed um, a bigger uh, pool of women. They needed a, a a much larger group. And the question was where to do that, given that it was illegal in the United States. Um, there was almost no way that they were going to conduct a large clinical trial anywhere in the United States. And then finally, Pincus. Uh, was invited to give a lecture in Puerto Rico, and when he went down there, the light bulb went off. You know, there were American-trained doctors and nurses down there. Birth control was widely accepted, even though the Catholic, even though the Catholic Church uh, had a strong presence in in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but there were these massive teeming slums of, that were overpopulated, and and the the population of Puerto Rico was was spinning out of control. There was a great urgency um, to do something about it. And Pincus thought this was it. This was the perfect place to to introduce the birth control pill. And they they recruited doctors and nurses down there, and began uh, what would become the the most important clinical trials in the pill's development. What if any ethical questions were asked about all of this when this testing began? There were no ethical questions asked, and and clearly this raised some issues. You're, this is the first time, really, that a medicine had been developed for healthy people. And, and a medicine that they would take every day, and a medicine that was designed for young women in particular who were were looking forward most likely to to years and years of of fertility ahead, and nobody knew what this what effect this was going to have in the long run. There were all of these fears that um, 
you know, the pill might affect their long-term ability to, re- to reproduce or that some, the, the babies who were born later after the, the women used the pill might be, might be damaged in some way. Nobody had any idea. So they were taking a huge risk, and they were not telling the, um, the women who were being tested of these risks. There was no re- requirement at the time to, to um, ask for consent. Um, in fact, I think most of the women in Puerto Rico believed that this was already a, a you know a, a provenly safe American drug because it came from America. Mm-hmm. They they gave it the benefit of the doubt. Um, but all of these ethical what what sound like ethical uh, problems were really um, the status quo for the 1950s. They were not breaking any laws, and in fact, you can argue that they were operating more safely and and more cautiously than most American clinical trials of their day. Hanging over all of this was the reaction of the Catholic Church. Talk about that. Yeah, the Catholic Church was was obviously um, fiercely opposed to to contraception, and um, for for time and memorial has argued that um, couples should have sex to make babies, and 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 that was all. And um, you know anything that that um, that helped uh, couples have sex um, without without the um, purpose of, of making children was something they were opposed to. But because these experiments were going on so quietly, um, the church never really caught up to it. They never really mounted much of, a, of an opposition campaign. In fact, you know, in Puerto Rico, when, when priests learned what was going on with these experiments, they would give sermons on Sunday saying, we've heard about these experiments for this birth control product, and we want to remind you all that the Church does not sanction this. We strongly encourage you to not to participate in these trials. And then on Monday, the lines at the clinics would be twice as big as they were before, because this was, this was a way of disseminating the news. Women in, in Church um, heard what was going on and, and were desperate to get these products, to get this new, this new medicine. And um, it, you know the, the 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 church could never catch up because the the women, uh, Catholic women, really for the first time in many ways, began to openly break with the church and to say, um, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Catholic and I and I and, and this is one area where I'm just going to have to disagree with with my priest and with the Pope and with the Vatican. Who had the idea that they could convince the Catholic Church to go along with this because it mirrored to some extent the one method that the Church was okay with, this rhythm method. Yeah, that's one of the great interesting pieces of this story. Um, They intentionally designed the pill so that it would allow women to have their periods every month. And that wasn't done to try to please the Church. It was really done to try to please the drug companies. The drug companies were afraid that um, this pill would seem unnatural, that they wanted women to feel like this was a product that, that... really conformed with what their bodies were already doing. So they built in, they didn't have to, they built in this period every month where women would have a period. And um, that gave John Rock the idea that really they could argue to the church that the pill was just a, a modern way of, uh, of applying the rhythm method. And the church, of course, allowed the rhythm method. Women were allowed to have sex during their, their safe period every month when they weren't ovulating, even though uh, that was very imprecise and resulted in a lot of errors. Um, so Rock went to the Catholic Church and argued that this pill gives us a way to um, apply the rhythm method much more efficiently. And because it's really um, mimicking the natural um, conduct of the body, the, the Vatican ought to approve it. 
And, you know, it was philosophically, his argument was flawed, um, but it was, a, it was a good try. <laughs> and, and one can only wonder um, if the Church had gone along with him, um, how different um, history would have been and, and how um, many more Catholic women might have uh, stayed uh, with the church, and and uh, maybe the the church would have had an easier time holding the line on abortion if they had if they had given women the pill. But ultimately, it was a, a papal a papal encyclical in 1968 that dashed any hopes of them going along with this. That's right, and uh, and we're still having the same arguments today. Talk a little bit about how they got FDA approval for this. Well, you know, the FDA at the time was concerned almost entirely with efficacy. The side effects were, were not really a factor. If, if, if you brought a, 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 an application for a new drug and it worked, um, the FDA tended to approve it. And, and that was the case here. The, the, the inventors of the pill um, ramped up the dosages very high to make sure that, that nobody was going to get pregnant on this thing. The, they, they began at 10 milligrams of progesterone, which was, you know, way, way more than they needed, and it was making women terribly sick. The side effects were, were, were horrible. There were uh, migraine headaches, nausea, dizziness. Mm-hmm. There were some, complaint, uh, some, some reports of blood clots. And um, you know, Pincus just believed as long as it, as long as it worked, uh, he could live with the side effects. And anyway, the side effects of pregnancy were, were way worse. So if women were getting pregnant uh, because they weren't taking the pill, um, they were going to have nausea and, 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 and all kinds of other side effects anyway. So he justified it in his own mind that way. Um, so when it was time to go to the FDA, they once again, you know, operated in a very clever, uh, sneaky way, and they they began by asking the FDA to approve it not as birth control, but as a pill to regulate women's menstrual cycles. So if you had an irregular cycle, you could go to your doctor and say, "My cycle's irregular. Uh, can you give me that new medicine that was just approved?" Uh, by now, they were calling it Enovid. E-N-O-V-I-D, and the Searle Drug Company was manufacturing it. So they, the FDA approves this pill for, for regulation of women's cycles, and they even insist that, that uh, Searle put a warning on the label that says, um, warning, uh, this, pill, it will, it's not, this pill will prevent pregnancy. Uh, so this becomes the greatest advertisement um, that Searle could have ever dreamed of, because women now know what it really does, and they begin flocking to their doctor's offices saying, I've got an irregular cycle, I need that now. And, and suddenly they have this new powerful tool to control the, the timing of their, of their decisions on, on parenthood. And, and that becomes, once, and, and then so many women are, are demanding this, that um, the genie's really out of the bottle at that point. How did they ultimately bring the drug companies into this? Very, very gradually. Um, Pincus went to Searle and simply asked them if they would agree to supply the chemicals that were needed for these trials. And Searle said, yeah, as long as you keep our name out of it, because we don't want to be associated with this thing if it blows up. Um, so the, the, the drug company, Searle, provided all these chemicals, and then when they saw that it was working and they saw that, um, that there was a demand for it, they they invested a little bit more, and they agreed to to put their name on that application for the drug to regulate menstrual cycles. And then when they saw how big the demand was for for that drug, even though it was not really supposed to be for birth control, 
that's when they, they went all in and they realized they had a potential blockbuster here and they were willing to take the chance. A lot of drug companies were not willing to take that chance. Others were afraid of the, the backlash from the Catholic Church and refused to 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 get involved. But um, Searle, uh, because it was a smaller company and, and felt like this was a chance for them to, to really uh, score, they, they invested uh, when others were, were perhaps afraid. And did Pincus benefit financially from all of this? Not much. Um, you know, interestingly, he he got some stocks, some some, some shares of, of Searle stock, but he never um, tried to patent the drug himself, never tried to, to cash in on it. And there were a couple reasons for that. One, he really believed that, that, that it was in the public interest to do this as quickly as possible and not to be selfish and to... Um, and, and and partnering with Searle was the way to get that done. Um, he also believed that, that certain drugs um, were really in the public domain, just like the polio vaccine, that uh, this was for, for the public good and, and you can't really, you shouldn't be able to patent um, a chemical formula um, that, that is, you know, fairly generic. And, and he just decided that it was the right thing to do was to let it go. And what was the rest of Pincus's career like? Um, you know, he, he was able to live long enough to see that the impact this was having, but he became sick uh, very soon after the pill was approved um, and, and struggled with cancer, um, blood cancer, and, and died uh, a fairly young man in his, in his late 50s. So um, he and, and Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick, John Rock, they all lived long enough to see the impact of their work, but, um, but it was really the last great uh, achievement for, for all of them. They, uh, Pincus died young, and the others were already quite old by the time the pill was produced. Jonathan Eig, the book is The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. Jonathan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.